Good afternoon from USC's Annenberg Media Center, and welcome to From Where We Are from Annenberg Radio News. For Tuesday, November 14, 2017, I'm Charlotte Kim. First, a news update with Ryan Thompson. Thanks, Charlotte. A gunman killed four people this morning at a small town in Northern California. Piper Hudspeth Blackburn reports. The shooter attacked at least seven different locations in Rancho Jahama, a rural community 130 miles north of Sacramento. The shooter first targeted a home before going to six other locations, including an elementary school. Police officials say at least three children were hospitalized, but no deaths were reported at the school. In total, 10 people were injured. Police killed the gunman, who they say was shooting victims randomly. They don't yet have a motive for the shooting. For Annenberg Media, I'm Piper Hudspeth Blackburn. The Los Angeles Times reported today that USC knew about Dr. Carmen Pulifito's alcohol abuse problems for more than five years. This summer, the Times published a stunning investigation that revealed the former Keck Dean was abusing drugs and alcohol and that he was in a hotel room when woman overdosed on drugs. Today's report says that the university did not report him to the California Medical Board during that time, and Pulifito, an eye surgeon, continued to treat patients. The university did not suspend his medical privileges until after the Times published its story. Later in From Where We Are, we'll hear from two of the Times journalists who broke that story. Physicians at L.A. County USC Hospital joined together on the front steps of the hospital to proclaim that they will continue to stand behind any person needing medical attention, no matter their legal status. As Paula Lozoni reports, this was inspired by recent events in Texas, where a 10-year-old undocumented girl was detained after emergency gallbladder surgery. Dr. Aslan Khan and Polo Morales from the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles rallied on the front steps of L.A. County USC Medical Center this morning. Dr. Khan was joined by roughly 30 of his colleagues who say they wanted to show their unwavering support for undocumented children receiving treatment at their facility. Hearing these stories and then that story in Texas like really just resonates like as a pediatrician, like, the, our job is to advocate for all children, and that's one child. Even if she, whether you're American, not citizen, not, that shouldn't matter. It's a human being. Um, and that's something that we as pediatricians fight for. That's- County USC Medical Center is a primary facility for low-income residents in the city, especially those who are not medically insured and depend on Medi-Cal. And that includes undocumented young people, who Dr. John Harlow says should be allowed to stay in the United States. And then I also want to say that our work is not done here. If you haven't signed up on the list, please sign up on the list. We need our Congress to pass a Clean Dream Act now. We're going to email out about how to advocate for that and call your Congress people. And uh, we're going to hopefully rally again here soon. The physicians are orchestrating similar efforts in other hospitals in California, like San Francisco Regional. For Annenberg Media, I'm Paula Ilanze. Tonight, expect a chill as temperatures will gradually drop to around 60 degrees after sunset. Tomorrow promises sunny, clear skies with a high of 79 degrees. And expect the weather to stay warm heading into the big football game against the Bruins on Saturday. An expected high of 75 degrees. The three UCLA basketball players arrested in China for shoplifting are on their way back home to the United States. Freshman Leandro Bal, Jaron Hill, and Cody Riley are expected to land at LAX in about an hour. The players were under house arrest after Chinese authorities say they were seen taking merchandise from several stores 
near their hotel in Hangzhou. President Trump says he intervened on their behalf during his visit to China last week. UCLA students Jake Apslaw and Gatlon Griffith explained how they think the players' actions have impacted their university. But it's kind of embarrassing that they got arrested in the first place because as students and student-athletes, they should be held to higher standards of just being well-behaved in a foreign nation. Uh, do I think that's unfair? Uh, not entirely. I think they have a platform to be very impactful. Uh, so getting them back over here and getting them on the right track again I think is important. Athletic director Dan Garrow and basketball coach Steve Alford will hold a news conference tomorrow morning to address the incident. No official disciplinary actions have yet been issued by UCLA, the Pac-12 Conference, or the NCAA. The issue of sexual harassment was front and center today at USC's School of Social Work. Students held a town hall meeting today with university officials. Christine DeLeon reports. Today's town hall meeting was called in the wake of a lawsuit filed by Ph.D. student Carissa Fenwick. She has accused social work professor Eric Guerrero of sexually harassing her. She also included the university in her lawsuit for not taking stricter action against Guerrero. The university removed Guerrero from any duties in which he has any contact with students for three years. Provost Michael Quick told the crowd that the university sanctions will send a message. We've taken action. We have done this sanction as a signal both to our community that they can trust that when people come forward, we're taking it seriously. But the other thing that will help is it will tell people who feel like they can abuse power that these are the kinds of things that will happen. But students and faculty said the university did not notify them of the charges against Guerrero. Doctoral student Robin Petering told Provost Quick and Dean Marilyn Flynn that the sanctions aren't enough. Knowing the history that Eric Guerrero had and then what feels really kind of icky on, on the inside um, is the sanctions. They appear to be for the two to three years. He's going to have the ability to come back and, and continue to work with students. I don't understand how two to three years off with someone that has a history is going, what is being done to prevent it? A new sexual harassment task force has been formed that will include students, faculty, staff, and alumni. It will advocate for reopening sanctions against Professor Guerrero and for a policy change at the school and university levels. For Annenberg Media, I'm Christine DeLeon. It's six minutes after the hour in Los Angeles. I'm Ryan Thompson. Thanks, Ryan. Coming up on From Where We Are, we sit down with two LA Times reporters who are on the team that reported on Carmen Pugliafito, the former dean of USC's Keck School of Medicine. Two LA Times reporters, Sarah Parvini and Matthew Hamilton, who are USC Annenberg alumni, were on campus today to talk about the investigation of the former USC Keck Medical School dean, Dr. Carmen Pugliafito. Reporter Sarin Habishian sat down with them to talk about their roles in the investigation, their use of social media, and what it's like to be young reporters. Sarah Parvini and Matthew Hamilton were on the LA Times team that uncovered the scandalous story about the USC Medical School Dean. I got to sit down with them and ask them about their experience breaking this story. Can you describe what the process from when you were brought on to now, what, what that was like? Sure. Um, Part of it for me was just getting to know the rest of the team and also familiarizing myself with the material, reading the story for the first time, things like that. Um, and then from there, I think it was us kind of forming a battle plan of who's going to look up what, who's going to 
whole witch record and who's going to knock on whose door and what are the you know the different teams that we're going to put together to you know approach different people and for a solid month i think Mm -hmm. the entire month of march it was going after it in terms of just full-blown reporting at all at all times and we had we developed kind of multiple spreadsheets and group documents where we could kind of pull all the you know the reporting that we've gathered and organize it and we could each you know various lists and when people were contacted and uh, looking up court records here's their criminal histories here are their lawsuits um, giving summaries and really kind of developing this very ad hoc database of you know five people's reporting and but i think a, a big part of it was as sarah said you know five reporters were all pretty idiosyncratic mm-hmm. um, and kind of getting to know <laughs> you know some of us are very early risers like harriet ryan right. gets up at 5 a.m paul pringles you know sending out emails at 3 a.m these are night owls so yeah. it, it was just kind of a lot of that uh balancing those you know the actual reporting with just the personalities <laughs> yeah I actually got to speak to Paul Pringle recently about this story. He mentioned that social media can be used as a public record. Yes. And today you both mentioned you used Sugar Daddy, uh, you used LinkedIn and the Dean's Venmo account. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about, Sarah, you called it cyber snooping. I think it comes with the territory of, I'm going to use the word I hate, which is millennial. Um, <laughs> but I think just being sort of raised in the time of Facebook and before your time, MySpace, um, you just develop a certain set of skills when it comes to looking people up on the internet, you know, looking at people's social media to see what they're up to. And there, I think, can often be a gap when it comes to different age groups, right? So someone who's 66 years old might not realize that some of the things that they're posting on social media are public or that some of their friends lists are public things of that nature, where if you're a little bit younger, you understand the ins and outs of social media and what is readily available to someone. You both touched on this earlier, but as alumni, what do you think of USC's (coughs) um, refusal to comment? Well, I think, you know, anytime you're reporting a story, um, you always want to give all sides, uh, all all people and entities involved a very, um, you know, you you want to make them, give them a chance to comment. Um, and I think no matter who it is, I think you always want them to comment. It just makes it a better story. Um, I think they have their reasons for not talking. Um, I, I, I don't know what they were, but they seem to be insistent on communicating through statements and public letters to the university community. Like Matt said, anytime you were trying to get an answer from an institution and they don't answer you, you you wish that they would. Um, it provides more information. It provides more detail and, and color for a story. And it helps make the story more well-rounded. So we're always looking for any institution that we're writing about to to give us a shot and answer our questions. You know, we, we report on USC every day in a variety yeah. of ways, whether it's missions, figures, or athletics. Um, and this is just one piece of that reporting because our readers are alums or community members and care about the university. So I think, you know, it's it's part of our mandate as a local news uh, agency to, you know, continue to cover USC. Yeah, what's next is just, just keep going at it. Well, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate your time and Thanks for, for sharing us. your knowledge thank with you. us. Thank you.
For Annenberg Media, I'm Sarin Habesian. The University of Southern California's Gould School of Law has launched the first project in the nation that will study children put on the witness stand in abuse cases. USC professor of law and psychology Thomas Lyon is a principal investigator for the study. Diana Postolacci has a story. Thomas Lyon has been developing child interviewing techniques for two decades. Now, with a $2.9 million grant from the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Development, he will test those techniques in the field and in dependency courts. That's a court that hears cases about abused or neglected minors. Over the next five years, Lyon expects to talk to more than 1,000 children attending schools around USC and children in dependency courts. Lyon says the project's goal is to maximize the amount of information a child can give while minimizing suggestibility. And that's, of course, a challenge because younger kids tend not to give you much information. And when they've been abused, they're often very reluctant to talk very much about what has occurred to them. Lyon says it is important to spend a little time to gain a child's trust before asking the hard questions. Five minutes before you ever talk about abuse, just getting the child to talk about things in their life, and you basically teach them that what you want from them is not a simple yes or no response to your question, but an actual narrative, an actual story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. While using this technique during an interview, Lyon says the child will progress from simple yes or no answers to a conversation. Using an example of asking the child about soccer, Lyon says if you ask, do you like soccer, you're bound to get a short yes or no answer that doesn't really go anywhere. But if you say, tell me everything about soccer, the child is more likely to give you more. The longer answer will get the interviewer closer to the truth. And it's based on that narrative we can tell the difference between a child who's, say, making something up or who has been coached or has some false belief and a child who's actually experienced something. According to Lyon, a good child witness is just as valuable as an adult, and in some cases, even more so. Because when you see what a child can actually do, uh, people are so impressed by it, at how productive kids are, um, they tend to be far more convincing than, than adult witnesses. Nevertheless, Lyon says that a child's testimony is usually not enough. He says that in most cases, the courts want additional evidence. While improved interviewing techniques that get more information from children can't always get the prosecutors all the evidence they need, they can go a long way to protecting children from abusive situations. For Annenberg Media, I'm Deanna Pastolacci. The infamous USC-UCLA football game returns this weekend, and with it comes rivalry. UCLA students have defaced USC statues in the past, and this year, they have a new possible target. The Hecuba statue stands towering over the USC village, but on a campus laced with tradition, she has her own protectors. Ryan Temple brings us a story. USC's Trojan Knights wrap Tommy Trojan in duct tape to protect him from UCLA vandals around this time each fall. The Knights are an organization dedicated to university tradition and the Trojan spirit. The sister organization, the Helenas, founded in 1921, have helped with what is called Tommy Watch for years. And now, this week, it's the Helenas' turn to start their own tradition, Hecuba Watch. The USC Village opening this past August introduced the statue of Hecuba. She stands for the women of USC, and with Rivalry Week here, it's some of those women in charge of having Hecuba's back. Jessica Milton is family chair of the Helenas, and for her, it's an honor to be part of starting this tradition. It'll be incredible to be able to, like, you know, tell people when they talk about Hecuba Watch, like, oh, hey, like, I was actually part of the first Hecuba Watch. President of the Helenas, Kylie Sedgwick, says the women have been working closely with the Knights to organize this watch party. 
We've been having people sort of go back and forth. Um, a lot of times Helene's are stopping by Tommy and hanging out for a little bit. Um, there's literally a Georgia night that just stopped by a second ago um, to say hi and see how it was going. So we definitely have a really um, friendly relationship. The Helenas began their mission last Saturday at 5 p.m. and it won't stop until the UCLA game this Saturday. The hours are long, but Jessica Milton says the Helenas are well stocked with everything they need. We have power outlets, we have food, we have blankets, we have everything you basically have inside your room at home. So it's like might as well be around your Helene sisters and guard Hecuba. The Knights understand what Milton means when she talks about this tradition spanning generations to come. Rich Windish, social media chair for the Knights, knows this fact firsthand. For me it's really special because my dad was a member of Trojan Knights, so to have his uh, college stories of him protecting Tommy Trojan, and now I'm doing it. It's just really cool to have that. This is the kind of tradition that the Helenas aim to begin, one hour at a time. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ryan Temple. A proposal to split up the technology behind the cyber currency Bitcoin left behind a sudden drop in the surge in the stock market over the weekend. The price of Bitcoin seems to be holding steady after a wild weekend. The cyber currency surged on Sunday, then plunged yesterday. That's not necessarily unusual for digital currency, but it may affect the future of Bitcoin. Natalie Kamenkun has a story. In just 14 hours, Bitcoin stock bounced between $5,000 to $7,000 over the weekend. That may seem like a huge jump, and it is, but the price of Bitcoin is actually rising. Ben Graham is a Bitcoin expert, and he says that's actually pretty normal. You know, it has throughout its history been very volatile. Um, I mean, over the last year, you know, it's up an extraordinary amount. This marks the third crash for the cryptocurrency this year. And Graham says there are a lot of different reasons this specific drop happened. Bitcoin is always in competition with new entrants. Um, there are always new cryptocurrencies being created every couple of weeks. According to CNBC, 80% of Americans have heard of Bitcoin. But of them, half of them aren't even sure if the digital currency is legal. So what exactly is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is the most popular digital currency that's out there right now. And the core technology of Bitcoin is something called the blockchain, which is just a distributed ledger. The blockchain keeps track of Bitcoin transactions. When someone requests money, the Bitcoin is validated and the money is sent to another user. A permanent block is added to the existing blockchain. And like an accounting checkbook, there's no way to get rid of that transaction. But according to Graham, Bitcoin doesn't have any value. This currency isn't actually backed by anything. There's no like fixed exchange rate between like Bitcoin and gold or something like that. Um, so Bitcoin only has value because people think it has value and think that other people will continue to want to trade it with them. Blockchains can be monitored by just about anyone. USC junior Dong Zhe Li is the product advisor of the Trojan Blockchain Society. The new organization started recruiting for members this semester. We will be able to be the organization, the hub for blockchain on campus, and I think there's definitely a great interest um, throughout the entire community, yeah. Despite its repeated crashes, the stock has gradually increased since it was introduced in 2009. Lee says it makes him confident in the future of Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies. Bitcoins are giving the kind of the returns um, that you wouldn't expect from normal financial investments in a very short period of time. So if you don't want to wait long, you might risk that kind of volatility for a higher return in Bitcoins. And that's a great incentive, I believe, for a lot of millennials and young people. For now, the price for Bitcoin rises. But current investors are all but trained for another sudden drop. 
For Annenberg Media, I'm Natalie Kelman-Kun. The new Crenshaw Metro line has brought a lot of changes to South LA. The line won't open until 2019, but the station being built in the Hyde Park neighborhood is already having an impact. Intersection South LA reporters Sophia Bosk and Elise Ellis asked residents how they and their community are being affected. The only thing is the construction, the metro construction, because like you can see right now, it's like the street sometimes is empty because they close the whole street right here and nobody can pass. I'm not really against the rail system. I'm more for it because of the simple fact that it's going to bring another level of security, meaning it's going to be 24-hour surveillance everywhere you go now. So that helps. My brother, he just had a rent increase, which was $150, and I don't think that's fair. And I have two. I, I started out, I think it was uh, 975 and now it's over 1000 A lot of people are moving out, selling their homes, going somewhere that's much cheaper. Hey, you know, we could give you a four-bedroom, three-bathroom place in Lancaster for 800 a month. And if you have a family, you'd be looked at as just stupid for passing that opportunity up. The median price for a single-family home in Hyde Park has gone up more than 30% in the last year, according to the LA Times. When the Crenshaw line is completed, it will pass through four South LA neighborhoods before reaching the Green Line by LAX. This is a third in a four-part series on gentrification from different neighborhoods in South LA. Now, it's time for Ampersand. Ampersand. Ready. Oh. Covering Los Angeles arts and culture and everything in between. What do basketball players and comedians have in common? We sent in our resident stand-up comic and ex-high school point guard, Ellen Ford, to figure it out. It's 8 o'clock at night on a Tuesday at Pan Pacific Park in the Fairfax District, which should be dead, but I had a hard time finding a parking spot. And inside the gym, it is popping. As I'm walking in, groups of women in their 20s and 30s are walking out in sweaty ponytails and socks with Air Jordan sandals on. Play something. One, two, three, layups! That's the princess layups. They're about to tip off against the Lucille Ballers. The women's only municipal basketball league is made up of comedians and actresses who ball hard and insist on puns. Halftime is a choreographed dance routine. They sell merch. And they have thousands of followers on Instagram. Aubrey Plaza, a comedic actress known coincidentally for her role in a show called Parks and Rec, insisted on a women's league from the L.A. Department of Recreation and Parks. That was almost four years ago, and it's thriving today. What is it about basketball that's so attractive to performers? Walking out of the gym after a good game is like walking off stage after a good set or a good show, because it's like, oh yeah, I'm f and dope. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and it, it's my world, baby. Can I swear? That's Janine Hogan. She plays point guard. We're here for, like, the jokes and the fun. I think that adds to it where it's like, we're all just goofy goobers out here. So it's like a stage, but one where everyone is nice to each other and there's competition, but you're playing your friends. This is a sanctuary. And there is a direct competitiveness. That was Annika Sells. She coaches the Princess Layups. That you can quantify that you don't have in, let's say, an improv or comedy situation where you're just like, well, that didn't go well. I don't know how I did compared to that other person. But tonight we can say, well, we won. See, the whole league started because these women told their friends about it, who happened to also be in the entertainment industry, and everyone wanted in. It's a lot of improv people, and improv in a weird way is very much a team sport, 
and so basketball is a bit more of a physical team sport but it is interesting to note that often the teams who have the most team camaraderie are the improv people. To succeed in comedy, you have to stick together and lean on each other. Because being on stage can be the loneliest feeling in the world, especially on a bad night. I mean, L.A. can be such a lonely place sometimes that it's just a really good way to socialize um, and have a really strong group of women friends and not have kind of it's not fun playing with guys usually because they just try to show off even when it's guys against guys they're just showing off it's not fun playing with guys and i had one more pressing question for janine why are so many comedians playing basketball and also why are so many female comedians gay which is my uh, what is the de- what is in the water what do you think yeah the cliche there is a cliche large amount of women although my team is just me. That's funny. Um, oh, God, I get a switch team. So the Princess Layups ended up winning by two points off free throws because they almost blew a 13-point lead. Game's over. Everyone is sweaty but smiling. Both teams line up, about to shake each other's hands. How do you feel? I feel amazing. How do you feel? Great. How do you feel? Amazing. How do you feel? Fantastic. How do you feel? Fantastic. How do you feel? Great. How do you feel? Higher. You can play in this league if you're not an actress or a comedian, and you can play in this league even if you've never played basketball before in your life. This is for women who are looking for a good group of female friends who will pass you the ball. For Annenberg Media, I'm Ellen Ford. If you've ever wondered about the origins of curious words and phrases, here's Jose Cardenas with today's Root Source. On today's Root Source, we take a look at the history of the word oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. Beautifully painful, Great Depression. An oxymoron is a figure of speech where contradictory words are used together to express wit or underscore the importance of a situation. I'm busy doing nothing. The word first appeared in the mid-17th century, coming from the Greek word oxymoros, which means pointedly foolish. The word comes from the roots oxus, meaning sharp, and morose, meaning foolish. I am a deeply superficial person. Alone together. Alone together. Oxymorons are more prevalent than you would think. Examples include cruel kindness, open secret, love-hate relationship, and virtual reality. Take a few minutes to think about what oxymorons you use in everyday conversations. You might be surprised how much you use opposites to create meaning. When someone tells you to act natural, that's an oxymoron. International medical aid group Doctors Without Borders is bringing the refugee crisis to Los Angeles. Or rather, they're bringing a virtual reality exhibition meant to give visitors an idea of what it's like to flee a country. Helen Arase has this report. The exhibition called Forced From Home is currently sitting in a parking lot by Santa Monica Pier. It's a free exhibition that simulates the process of fleeing a country to arrive in a refugee camp. Well, I can't state how important it is that people know what's going on in another part of the world. That's Lori Weber. She's a clinical psychologist who's worked on four missions with Doctors Without Borders. 
that people understand what refugees' experience is like. If a person is living in a refugee camp, what their experience is. So I think it's important that people know that, you know what, maybe when we don't take people into this country, that they live a different lifestyle than we live. During the experience, visitors take an hour-long tour on which they are assigned a country. They watch a series of videos in 360 degrees to learn some of the reasons people leave their homes. And then... I will give you 30 seconds. You have to imagine there's a, there's a danger approaching. You have to pick only five items in 30 seconds, not more. Go! Ahmed Abarazag is one of the guides in the exhibition in Santa Monica. All the guides are Doctors Without Borders aid workers who have firsthand experience with armed conflict, epidemics, and natural disasters. Adbal Razag fled from Iraq. He was seven. His grandmother couldn't walk well. They had to leave her behind. He brings his personal experience to the exhibition. No one cheating. No one telling someone else, you take this and I take that. You are by your own, okay? According to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, 10.3 million people were displaced in 2016. This includes people displaced within their own country, refugees, or those seeking asylum. The exhibition then uses virtual reality to impart empathy and drive home the realities of boat rescues, the lack of basic needs, and shelter. Middle schoolers from St. Anastasia Catholic School look up at exhibition guide Philip Sachs. Anybody else, what, what will you share with your parents or your brother or your sister? Something that you saw that really struck you? Um, the conditions of where they have to go to the bathroom. Forced from Home is a free event and will be at the Santa Monica Pier through November 19th. For Annenberg Media, I'm Helen Arase. That's it for From Where We Are Today. Today's show is produced by Garrett Schwartz. We had help today from Jeremy Thompson and Brian Bill Nilsson. Chris Perfett is our board operator. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Annenberg Media. I'm Charlotte Kim. Thank you.